Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and the elders. And uh, Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. God set the people of Israel free from slavery. And God set the people of Israel free for the purpose of enjoying relationship with himself. If we're going to understand the book of Exodus, we've got to hold both of those things in our minds. As we've been studying this book, we have seen God set the people free from slavery. That's important. But even more important than what he set them free from is what he set them free for. God liberated the people for the purpose of enjoying relationship with himself. In fact, God has bound the people to himself in a covenant of love. That's what our text is about today. Now, 
As we've been studying the book of Exodus for the last several months, we've talked about this word covenant quite a bit, said it's one of the most important words in the book of Exodus, so everybody say covenant. A covenant is a relationship based on promises. And our text today is about the ratification or confirmation of the covenant. God's covenant relationship with his people is absolutely secure because it is based on the faithfulness of God. It's based on God's promises and God's faithfulness to those promises. As a matter of fact, as we read through the story of the Old Testament, we're going to find that God's people frequently fail to keep up their end of the covenant and have to suffer consequences for that. But even when the people rebel, God remains faithful. He never gives up on his people. He never abandons his promises. He keeps pursuing them. And as followers of Jesus, we can say, if you want to know how far he was willing to pursue his unfaithful people, you just look at the cross of Christ. He was willing to go that far. Exodus 24 is about the ratification of the covenant, the whole chapter. And we see the word covenant popping up in verses 7 and 8. Look with me real quick. Then he took the book of the covenant. You might underline those words, the book of the covenant. God's revealed word spoken to Moses and through Moses to the people is at the heart of this covenant relationship. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. That's what our commitment of faithfulness is supposed to be today. Amen. Whatever Jesus says, God help us, we will do it. And the text continues. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Those are important words you might underline. The blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We'll talk more about the elements of the, the word of God, the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant in a moment. But right now I want to emphasize the point that in Exodus 24, what we're reading about is that God is establishing a relationship that is absolutely secure. And that the security of that relationship is something that we need to understand, especially within our cultural moment, which some sociologists have described as the era of disposable relationships. We don't know a lot about faithfulness and secure relationships in our time, do we? Let's just take a moment to reflect on that. I think I would make this argument, church family. That for many of us, a high degree of the anxiety, fear, uncertainty, discouragement that we face in life is symptomatic of the fact that all of our relationships feel so insecure. Now, if we wanted to look at the sort of caricature or stereotypical representation of this, we just look at social media, right? I got a Facebook account. I know most of y'all aren't on Facebook anymore because you're better busy, whatever, insta-snapping or whatever it is the kids are doing these days. I'm not about that life yet. I do have a Facebook account, and I'm not a very faithful Facebooker. I'll go months without getting on, and then I'll get on every day for a while, and then I won't get on for a long time. And when I get on after those long departures, there's usually notifications. And one of the notifications that's usually there is people that said, it says, friend requests. These people want to be my friend, right? And sometimes I look at it, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. I met you six months ago or four years ago or whatever. Yeah, I'll be your friend. Sometimes I don't know who it is. So I'm wondering, is this shady? Is this a marketing scheme? But if it says that we have five mutual friends and those look like people I actually know, all right, I'll accept it. 
and we have a relationship. You can feel good. You can get a thousand friends real quick like that, right? But then, every now and then, I log on after a long distance. You, you know what I'm talking about. You get on, and you start scrolling down your wall, and somebody says something crazy. Now, I don't just mean, you know what I'm talking about, Johnson? <laughs> I don't just mean a little bit crazy. I mean, like, in your face, offensive. This just gave me a panic attack. This is crazy, right? And when you do that, what do you go click? Unfriend. The relationship started that easy and it ended that easy. Now, that's disposable relationship. Now, most of us are smart enough to know the difference between Facebook, social media, friendship and in real life friendship. But Facebook is kind of like a parable for a reality of what we're seeing in our real relationships and even in some of our intimate relationships. If we want to be real about this for a second... The, the relationship between parents and children is supposed to be a deep and abiding bond, right, of love and honor. And yet many of us in our congregation know the experience of abandonment or abuse, breaking that relationship that was supposed to make us feel secure. And many of the kids in our neighborhood are having behavior problems and we're, we're trying to help them. But the reality is they're just acting out a deep frustration and anxiety That comes from a relationship that was supposed to be secure, that would give them a foundation for life that now is insecure. A lot of folks later in life getting into trouble because of damage that was done early or the reverse. Some of the parents in the room may know the experience of having a child who goes AWOL and abandons and is unfaithful. God intended marriage to be a covenant, a secure relationship which points forward to his relationship with us in Christ. And that's why Christians love marriage. That's why we celebrate it. But you and I know that so frequently in our marriage relationships, we fall short of the standard that God has set, don't we? The divorce rate is off the charts. It's over 50% in Oklahoma. Unfortunately, among Christians, the numbers are about the same. And once again, many of us in this room know firsthand the anguish that happens when this relationship that's supposed to be a secure relationship of love is attacked through whatever it may be, abuse, infidelity. People just get tired of the situation and move on. And this supposed to be secure relationship when it's broken can can cause great damage. Now, many of us can also testify Jesus can heal after that, too, can he? Thank God that even after... Broken family relationships, broken relationships between parents and children and broken marriages. God can still work in our lives. But a lot of damage is done, even economically, even financially. You know, when I talk to people in their 80s, they tell me stories about working for the same company for 40 years. And I don't even know how to compute that as a guy in my 30s. I remember one time making the mistake. I I worked with a faithful man of God in his 80s who... Uh, We worked together in ministry, but he had spent 40 years working for AT&T. And one time I made the mistake of suggesting that in our ministry office, we could maybe get a better deal on our Internet. We switched from AT&T to Cox, and I've never been rebuked by it in such a way. What? I worked for this company. I've got my blood, sweat, tears in AT&T, and they cared for me. We don't understand that. A lot of folks today who are growing up right now, folks in their 20s and 30s, are going to have career changes four or five times. I don't mean job changes, career changes. In fact, some sociologists are saying young folks, and I don't mean little kids, even those in their 20s and 30s in America right now, struggle to maintain any relationship longer than two to four years. Our our normal romantic relationship, some sociologists have said, is no longer life-term monogamy, 
lifetime monogamy. It's serial monogamy. I'm in relationship with one person at a time. But there will be a bunch. Why am I spending so much time talking about this? I'm spending time talking about this because in our culture, we often think of those disposable relationships and the disposable nature of them as giving us freedom. But what it really does is make us anxious, make us afraid, make us lonely. We are designed to flourish within secure, loving relationships. And in our text today, what we're being told is though everybody in your life may be unfaithful, God is not unfaithful. God binds himself to us so that if your parents abandon you, you could cry out like David did in Psalm 27. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Right. If your spouse or your friends or your job abandons you, you have a relationship with God that is secure. Paul in Romans 8 says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus if you trusted in Jesus. He says nothing can separate us from the love of God, not all the forces of hell or even death itself. In our text today. One of the images that shows us how beautiful this relationship is and how much we should celebrate it comes in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Verses 9 and 10 talk about God manifesting himself among his people. And then it says (laughs) Moses and a few of the leaders of Israel are there when God manifests his holy presence. And they're scared because God is holy and they recognize that they're sinful. But look what it says. And he, that is God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, the holy God didn't just zap them for their sin. He was gracious to them. And then it says they beheld God and ate and drank. They beheld God. They saw the glory of God manifested in a way that blew their minds and they survived the experience. And because of God's love, they feasted. I titled my text today, Feasting with God, because this theme of table fellowship with God and a joyful and a secure relationship is one that I think we followers of Jesus in the 21st century need to meditate upon. People who were totally vulnerable slaves are now brought into a relationship with God That is absolutely secure and that is something to celebrate. So they have a feast. Now, maybe you think I'm talking about the people of Israel right now, but I'm talking about us. Listen to this again. People who were completely vulnerable slaves. Everybody say that's us. Are now brought into a relationship with God that is absolutely secure. And that's something to celebrate. That's the experience of every Christian. People who were slaves to sin and Satan and death have been liberated by Jesus and brought into a relationship that's unbreakable, a covenant relationship. And that's something to celebrate. I fear, friends, that some of us have gotten so used to the idea of our salvation that we have forgotten how much we have to celebrate. Some of us perhaps have begun to take it for granted, this relationship that we have with Christ. And Exodus 24 is here to remind us of what a precious privilege it is to enjoy covenant relationship with the living God and to feast in his presence. Moreover, before I dig into some of the details of this covenant relationship, I want to say this. The covenant relationship in Exodus 24 is a great covenant, but it's pointing us forward to a greater covenant, the new covenant that we experience in Christ. So the beautiful stuff we see in this passage gets an even greater fulfillment in Jesus. I'll say more about that in a moment. 
But taking this text and its greater fulfillment in Christ and meditating on it, I think could have a pretty profound spiritual influence for some of us because give me your heart and mind for one moment. If I could get your attention for just a second. Listen to this. I truly believe that some of us in our family may be missing out on a great deal of the joy that is ours in Christ. Simply because we have not fully understood and believed and rested in the reality of our unbreakable covenant relationship with God. Here's a second statement. Just pray the Holy Spirit will help this land in some of our hearts that need to hear this. Some of us are living our lives in a constant state of fear and anxiety. Because we have not yet fully understood and believed and embraced and rested in the security of a covenant relationship with an almighty God who promises to take care of us. That's you today. I think the Lord wants to speak a deep word to your heart. Moreover, some of us in our church family may be in a position in which we're actually like flirting with disaster because we're toying with sin that threatens our souls because we have forgotten just how precious this relationship with God is. What a privilege it is to have an unbreakable relationship with God, to be able to feast on God's presence. So my prayer is, Lord, renew our minds today with the knowledge of the security of this relationship and the joy of this feast. Before I go forward, I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And I want to ask you to pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. If, if you are here and you know that you are not right with God, pray that the Spirit of God would show you the secure, loving relationship that you can enjoy through Jesus and give you faith in Jesus today. And if you're a Christian here today who wants more joy and more faith, less anxiety and doubt in your mind, just pray that the Holy Spirit will give you a knowledge of the security of your covenant relationship with God. Our Father, I know you have heard the silent prayers of the hearts of everybody in this room. And now I want to cry out to you again. Holy Spirit, help me. Help me in the few minutes we have together to unfold your word faithfully and with empowerment from on high. Help us to understand and believe and receive and be transformed by this relationship. I pray that if there's anybody here who is not in on this covenant. They have not yet repented of sin and trusted in Jesus that today would be the day. And I pray for every Christian here, Lord, that we would leave here with a much deeper security in our birthright as children who are bound to you in an unbreakable covenant of love. And that would lead to freedom and joy and celebration and radical steps of obedient faith because we don't fear what we might lose if we go all in with Jesus. As we know, he's going to take care of us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, to help drive this theme home, I want to just 
quickly point out to you some of the aspects of this covenant that we see in this text. First, the initiator of the covenant here is none other than the almighty, pure, holy, powerful, transcendent God. God initiates this relationship with us. Doesn't start with me. It starts with God. And the God who's described in this text is a holy God, a transcendent, a powerful God. Let me just show you some of the places this is emphasized. Look with me at verse 10. It says, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, we could pause right there because many texts, including John 1.18, say that nobody has seen God. They say that God is spirit and God is invisible. And yet this is one of many texts in the Bible in which we read that Somebody did see God. So what does that mean? And what it means is that God is manifesting his glory, perhaps through the mediation of an angel or some other mechanism. But he is showing some manifestation of his power so that the people are beholding the glory of God in a way that is designed to get their attention and to reveal to them who God truly is. And the text continues with this statement. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, this is a word picture. We're supposed to picture this. Can you picture this? It's kind of hard to picture. Up in the not too distant scenery, there is a big mountain. And the text is going to tell us in a second, a flame of fire has descended on that mountain. Back that way is the assembled host of the people of Israel. And gathered here is a few dozen leaders And the text says, God appears. We don't know what it looks like, but apparently it's very impressive, very big, signifying God's power. And underneath his feet, there's some sort of path, heavenly pathway that is clear as crystal, a bright, shining thing that seems to be signifying the absolute purity and holiness of God. And it seems to indicate this is a place where God, where heaven and earth are intersecting, where God's Holy presence as he is and as he forever reigns in the heavenlies is becoming manifest on earth in a way that has the people scared. That's why in a second Moses says, uh, and they didn't die. They saw God and they didn't die. Power, transcendence, glory. Skipping down a few verses. Listen to what we read in verses 15 and 17. 15 through 17. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses, that is, God called to Moses, out of the midst of the cloud. Now, in the appearance of the glory, excuse me, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. There's a cloud and there's a fire. These are two familiar symbols in Exodus signifying the glory of God. The cloud has come to represent the fact that though the people are gazing towards God's presence, his holiness is such that creatures, finite creatures, and in particular sinful creatures, cannot gaze upon him. He's shrouded in clouds and thick darkness, as the Psalms say. And yet in the cloud there is this fire, which we have come to see as a symbol of God's holiness. So everybody say cloud. Everybody say fire. The fire attracts by its warmth and its light and its color and movement, but it also threatens because if you come too close, you might get burned. Likewise, God is absolutely good. He's our source of life and he draws us to himself. And yet we tremble because we're aware that God's absolute goodness burns up evil and there's a lot of evil inside of us. 
This is the holy, transcendent, glorious God, and yet he initiates this relationship. Second point, the terms of the covenant are set forth in God's words, which he graciously gives to the people. Listen, friends, God didn't have to speak to us. God could have left us to wallow in our ignorance, but thanks be to God, he has spoken to us in his word. He reveals his character, his nature, and his covenant. And if you want to know what it's like to have a relationship with God, don't look into your heart and see how you feel. Look into God's word. That's what we need to do as the people of God. Listen to what what we hear here about the words of God. Verse 3 and 4. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. You might underline those words. All the words of the Lord and all his rules. Whenever the people of Israel live according to the word of God... Trusting him, worshiping him and obeying him according to his word. Things go well because they're living in touch with reality. Whenever they listen to their own hearts instead of the word of God, things start going poorly because they're living in a fantasy. So where are we going to get our ideas about spiritual and moral truth? Well, if we're going to be God's covenant people, we get them from his word. Moses spoke to them all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Thank God for written scripture that can be passed down from generation to generation. And it came to us a lot of blood, sweat and tears has produced the fact that right now on your phone or in that book in your lap, you get to read in your very own language the very words of God. I wish I had time to tell you stories this morning about all those monks going blind for all those generations in their dark cells copying by hand biblical manuscripts, or about the first people translating the Bible into the vernacular languages of of Europe and how many of them paid for that deed with their lives, but they were willing to die so that people like you and me could have the words of God in our hands. It's a precious privilege to have the written word of God, because here the holy God is saying to us, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is who you are. Here's the life that leads to joy. Here's how you can have relationship with me. These are the very words of God. Skipping down, we could look again at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So a pure, holy, transcendent God initiates this relationship. He gives the people his holy word, which sets the terms of the covenant. And then, as we already noted in verse 11, this holy God graciously invites sinful people to enjoy table fellowship with himself. Now, I'm going to come back and say a little bit more about this in a moment. But right now, I just want to say this theme of feasting with God is a big theme in the Bible. And it's a glorious theme. So we need to talk about the feast. Everybody say feasting with God. A feast is about celebrating the abundance of God's good gifts. If you have a scarcity mentality, you don't have a feast, right? If you have a scarcity mentality, you got to ration out the food. A feast is about more than you need. It's about abundance. It's about celebrating the abundance of God's good gifts. A feast is also about celebrating community. It's not just Moses. It's 70 of the elders that are gathered here. And when they sit down for table fellowship, they're enjoying community with one another on God's terms. And here's something for us to soak in, friends. If I enjoy a covenant relationship with Jesus and you enjoy a covenant relationship with Jesus, that means I enjoy a covenant relationship with you. So the family of God theme that we're talking about, the covenant relationship with God theme means that we're also bound in a covenant of love with one another. We're bound to each other in love. Sometimes 
Relationship in the church family ain't easy, right? Sometimes our church family hurts us. And yet, the things that unite us are much greater than the things that divide us. Because the blood of Christ and the word of the testimony unites us in Jesus. A feast is also about, and fundamentally, most importantly, about enjoying fellowship with God himself. God wants us to have fun, to party, to have joy in his presence. Now, how could it be that these sinful men could enjoy presence with a, a fellowship in the presence of a holy God? How could it be? Well, the answer is grace. God's grace is amazing. And also in this text, we're given two hints about the nature of God's grace, which are pointing us forward to our greater covenant in Jesus. First, in this text, sinful people are able to enjoy covenant relationship with God because there is a mediator. Moses is the mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. This shows up several times. Look at me at verse 1 and 2. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So if you haven't quite got this picture in your mind, let me paint it for you. Picture three circles, concentric circles, one inside of the other. Got that picture in your brain? Three circles. At the center is the mountain, Mount Sinai, which is the center of the manifestation of God's holy presence in this text. It corresponds into what, what's later going to be the tabernacle and the temple to the Holy of Holies. At the edge, the outermost circle, the third circle, is where the assembled people are, all the people of Israel. And that corresponds to the sort of, sort of outer sanctuaries. Of the later tabernacle and temple. And Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and Joshua and the 70 elders are coming to the middle circle. Circle two. Which corresponds to the holy place. So there's the outer courts. The holy place and the most holy place. And some of the leaders are able to come into what will be called later the holy place. But only Moses gets to go up on the mountain. Into the presence of God. And God... Makes it clear elsewhere in Exodus and Deuteronomy that if the other people had tried to come, they would have died. But Moses goes forward as a mediator. This is emphasized throughout the text. Just look at the last verse of the chapter. It says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So there's a mediator, somebody that goes between. Moses represents God to the people. He speaks God's word. And Moses represents the people to God. He goes into God's presence. And as we're going to see in a few chapters, when the people sin, Moses prays and intercedes for them and God forgives them. So everybody say mediator. There's a go between a mediator. Also, final point about the covenant here. This covenant is secured in blood. Look at verses five and eight, uh, five through eight. We read this. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So they're sacrificing animals, burnt offerings and peace offerings. And Moses took half of the blood in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. The altar is being consecrated and purified. And he took the book of the covenant. We already read about this and read it in the hearing of the people. They said, we'll do whatever God wants. Skipping down to verse eight. And Moses took. The blood and threw it on the people. Can you picture that? Moses comes up here and he's got a bunch of blood and he's just throwing it out at us as the congregation. 
that's a powerful visual and olfactory reminder, isn't it? Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine what it feels like, the hot blood when it hits you? That'll make an impression. Moses throws the blood, he sprinkles it on the people. And then, as we continue to read, we read about the blood of the covenant. Blood of the covenant. So, what does that mean? What is that about? Well, the, the blood represents several things here. One of the things is, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there was often the killing of an animal as part of the ratification of a covenant. And what that represented was the stakes of this covenant relationship. As in, if we break the covenant, that's what's going to happen to us. So this is a matter of life or death. That's part of what is represented here. And so far as we're talking about a burnt offering, what's happening is the people are saying, everything that we have, God, comes from you, and now we're offering the best of it back to you because we belong to you and everything we have belongs to you, so we're fully devoted to you. Insofar as it's a peace offering, it is saying this blood gives us peace with God, and we're enjoying this relationship of peace. There's also an element here which is very important, which has to do with atonement. Now, that's a big word in the Bible. Everybody say atonement. As we read through Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, we read that the priests are sprinkled with blood. There's a sacrifice of atonement. The priests are sprinkled with blood, purifying them of their sin so that they can come into the presence of a holy God. And now in chapter 19, we were told that the whole community is now a kingdom of priests. But if they're going to enjoy that relationship with God, they have first to be purified because they're guilty of sin. Their blood deserves to be shed. But now the blood of a substitute is being shed in their place and they're being sprinkled with this blood and God's saying, you're purified, you're forgiven, you can come into my presence. So how can a sinful people come to enjoy table fellowship with the holy God? Well, he's gracious and he's gracious through a mediator and he's gracious through the blood of sacrifice. Now, everybody already here, if you're a Christian, you're already wanting to shout out one name. Who are we talking about right now? We're talking about Jesus. You see, this covenant that we read about in Exodus 24 is good. It's great. It's awesome. But it's not good enough. Because this covenant was insufficient to change the sinful hearts of the people and to deal once and for all with their sin problem. The people are going to need a new liberation. They will need, in fact, a new covenant. As we've already mentioned, the Old Testament story tells us over and over about God's people failing to keep up their end of this covenant relationship and thus earning God's discipline. But he never gives up. He continues to be gracious to them. And one of the most important passages in the Old Testament that you need to understand comes in Jeremiah, where God promises he's going to give the people a new covenant. So everybody say new covenant. If you have your Bible, flip with me for one moment to Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read to you verses 31 through 34. During a low point in the history of Israel in which they are facing great punishment for their sins. God speaks this word to them about the fact that he's not going to give up on them. And let me just say, maybe some of us need to hear that right now this morning. Some of you came here today and you're at a low point in your life, maybe in your relationship with God. But it's not too late. God hasn't given up on you, which is why you're here today. So there's still hope. Everybody say there's still hope. God's grace keeps pursuing you. Now, hopefully you've made it over to Jeremiah 31. In this low point, 
Let me read you what God says in verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying this one is not going to be the same as the one in Exodus 24. It's going to be better. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I want you to hear this word within them. Those two words within them. This is representing the core problem. See, the people of Israel had received God's word. They had the word in their hands. They had the scroll, but the the word didn't live in their hearts. What they needed was not just an external work. They needed an internal work. They needed new hearts. And what we need is not just to hear sermons or read scriptures. What we need is the spirit of the living God to change our hearts. And that's what God said he was going to do. He's going to put it inside their hearts. And then he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God is going to do a new thing that's going to bring about a permanent cleansing and forgiveness of sin. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit inside of them. Now, when it's saying this stuff about nobody teaches each other, it's clearly not saying we can't learn from each other, right? Within the body of Christ, I can learn from you. You can learn from me. The New Testament talks about the gifts, teaching being one of the spiritual gifts given to the church. But what it is saying is that the Holy Spirit is our main teacher. And if we trust in Christ, he lives inside of every one of us and teaches us how to know God. Now, that new covenant Jeremiah was talking about gets fulfilled in Jesus. And we could spend a whole sermon series, five or six sermons, just talking about how Jesus fulfills every aspect of this covenant. If you want to study that, I would encourage you to study the book of Hebrews. It's glorious. And especially, you might want to write this down if you're interested in this theme, especially Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, which reflects on Exodus 24 and talks about the greater fulfillment that we have in the new covenant of Jesus. But let me just briefly summarize to you the ways in which this great covenant we read about in Exodus 24 receives a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. First of all, we said that this covenant was established by a holy, transcendent, mighty God. But in Christ, we have a much greater revelation of the holy and transcendent God. Hebrews begins by saying that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by these prophets or by the prophets. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son. And it goes on to say that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, which means if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know the depths of God's holy love, you look at the cross of Jesus where he died for our sins. You want to see the extent of God's holy power. You look at the resurrection of Jesus. The holiness and transcendence and power of God is more fully revealed in Jesus. Not only that, but we have a greater mediator in Jesus Christ. You see, Moses was a good mediator, but he wasn't good enough. As a matter of fact, we're going to read in Exodus that Moses himself, the man of God, sins against God. And Moses isn't even able to enter the promised land. Now, if he can't enter the promised land, that's going to be a problem if he's the mediator. 
But in Jesus Christ, we have the one perfect mediator, fully God and fully man, absolutely holy. And yet he came among us as one of us so that he could bring us to God. In Jesus, we also have a better sacrifice. The blood of those sacrificial animals could never give us a once and for all cleansing of sin. But all that blood was pointing forward to Jesus, the great blood sacrifice, who once and for all died for our sins so that sinful people could be purified. And if you're here today and you trust in Jesus, that blood is sprinkled on you, which means not only do you get to come to the second circle, you get to go all the way into the center of God's holy presence with boldness and with joy to worship God forever. The blood of Christ deals with our sin once and for all. Jesus speaks to us God's holy word in a deeper way than ever before. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount and you'll hear Christ unfolding to us the true and deep meaning of the Mosaic law. But more than that, Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit. Check Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Every Christian who believes in Jesus Christ receives the indwelling spirit who changes our hearts from the inside out so that we can hear and believe and obey God's word. And finally, I want to end today by emphasizing this point. By faith in Jesus, we get to enjoy feasting with God. By faith in Jesus, we get to enjoy feasting with God. As a matter of fact, at the heart of the Christian life is a feast. At this feast, Christ is both the host and the meal. Christ is present as host, welcoming us into the presence of God. And Christ is present as meal, saying in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I'm out of time, but if you'll indulge me, I want to reflect on this theme of the feast for one second before we go to the Lord's Supper. You see, the feast in Exodus 24.11 was a signpost and a very imperfect picture of something greater that was going to come later. And when the people of God broke that Mosaic covenant, not only did Jeremiah say that God's going to make a new covenant, but Isaiah said there's a better feast coming. So when we talk about a new covenant, we're also talking about a better feast. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah looks forward to a day in which all the nations are going to be rescued from evil and death and fear forever. And they're going to come to the mountain of God. And in verse 6 we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of well-aged wine. A feast of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. Can you picture that with me for a second? So there's a, the mountain of God and there's a big party. It's not just a few of us there. All nations are there. Everybody say all nations. The cloud of evil and sin and death has been removed. And there's a big old party, a big old picnic. Now, I think we can use a little bit of sanctified imagination here. I want to ask you to indulge me for a moment. I already did. I'm asking you a second time. Would you please indulge me? Okay, I got 2% buy-in on that. I'm going to do it anyway. That's enough. Indulge me for a moment. Picture this mountain. A feast for all nations of rich food. I picture there's like little tents, little picnic tents. You can go to any of them. There's like a Thai food picnic tent. Amen. There's a Mexican food tent, Taco San Pedro, but brought to its fulfillment and perfection in the family of God. There's a soul food tent all over the place. You can go from place to place to feast, rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well refined. And it's a party. A good feast doesn't just have food. It has songs. 
It has music. It has stories. It's a celebration. We're in the presence of God together. And from all nations are gathered millions and millions of saints who, like you and I, sinned and yet were reconciled to God by grace. And we're all saying, isn't Jesus good? But we're saying it within our own culture. So after I eat the spring rolls over at the Typhoon tent, I'm going over to uh, the gospel tent. And we got Mahalia Jackson, we got Mavis Staples and Jonathan McReynolds because the generations are reconciled. And we're singing out to the Lord together. And it's a great party. That's what Isaiah said is going to happen when Jesus comes back. And how do you get into that? How do you get into that feast? Well, Isaiah told us that also in chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is the requirement to get into this feast? You just have to be broke. That's all it takes. Anybody, can anybody testify that they're spiritually broke and have no claim to deserving to get into that feast? Then you've got what it takes. All you got to say is, I've got nothing. Jesus is my only hope. When Jesus came to the earth, we saw a partial fulfillment of these promises of Isaiah. At the center of the whole ministry of Jesus was table fellowship with sinners. You know, because the religious people kept getting mad about it, right? Jesus hangs out with Zacchaeus, with Matthew the tax collector. He hangs out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Prostitute comes and wipes his feet with her hair. And all the time they're saying, this is bad. Why are you doing this, Jesus? And Jesus is saying, this is the reason why I've come. I want to have table fellowship with sinners. And it reaches this culmination in Luke 22, which we read every week when we take the Lord's Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Looking back to Exodus. I want to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm about to give my life as your sacrifice. First, I want to feast with you. But this feast is a foretaste. Because look what verse... 16 says of Luke 22, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What was he talking about? The feast of the kingdom of God? Well, one more text. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. John is seeing this great vision. And here's what he writes. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Yeah, it is, because this is the feast on the mountain of Isaiah 25. There's a whole lot of people there. A big old party. And he says, it was like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, glory to God, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. And then he says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Did you hear that? The marriage of the lamb, all those human relationships that are so imperfect are pointing forward to this day in which our Covenant relationship with God is consummated. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are are the true words of God. Friends, we don't want to miss this feast. If you're here today 
and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I just plead with you, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus so you can be at this feast. He'll forgive you of your sins. And to the saints of God, here's what I want to say. We have a relationship with God that is secure, and that's something worth celebrating. Something worth celebrating. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, and I want to urge you to take the Lord's Supper with joyful hearts. The Lord's Supper is a renewal of vows ceremony. It's a renewal of our marriage vows with Jesus. The Lord's Supper points us to the past where we remember that Jesus laid his life down for us on the cross. It also points us forward to the future because this is a foretaste of a much better feast. The little cup and the little bread you eat, that's an appetizer. But there's a big feast coming. Jesus is present with us now, binding us together as one. He's present as host and as meal. And he says to us, come everyone who thirsts. Receive my grace and I will give you life. And that... That life, that joy that we have, feasting on God and his presence by his grace, is a reminder week after week after week after week of our hope and of the security of a relationship. And that security is what gives us strength to persevere in the life of discipleship. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, I thank you for this word. And as we take the Lord's Supper now, I pray that the Spirit of God would help us to more deeply appreciate the beauty and the glory of what we're doing. And to more completely rest in the grace of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's in his his precious name that we pray. Amen.